All the music that you'll hear on today's podcast is from A Fantastica Batteria by Alan Hetherington in Chocolachi. Welcome to the Brazilian Beat episode number 86 with Alan Hetherington from Toronto, Canada. Join us as we get to know the Brazilian percussion music making community one interview at a time. This is Diana. And this is Courtney. Hello, Diana. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice, nice. I've just uh, been getting a sourdough ready. <laughs> oh, fancy. <laughs> I think everybody's been getting into baking during this pandemic, mm-hmm. or a lot of people have. Yeah, a lot of bread baking happening. <laughs> well, then they run out of flour. That was one of the things they ran out of at the beginning. They did. The I remember yeah. uh, at the beginning, yeah, we were panicking, and we, <laughs> this is funny. My husband and I, we were panicking, and we're like, oh my God, we're going to run out of flour, and we ground everything <laughs> we had, like... We ground up lentils, we ground up uh, barley, everything. Wow. <laughs> Oats. We did it. You made your it. own flour? We did. We put it in blend, <laughs> the blender. And wow. Like we have a little, one of those little smoothie things. We have wow. like, yeah, it was hilarious. We had, we spent hours <laughs> doing it. We were in a panic. <laughs> Thinking back, it's hilarious now, but then we were... <laughs> Oh my God! You went all Y2K on it. <laughs> we did. So yeah, so we're we're set on flour now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> feed the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, nobody needs to send us any flour. How are you? What are you up to? I'm good. Just did a new workout, like most people doing new home workouts, and my arms were like noodles earlier, but you know, getting better. I uh, know. I was on the treadmill earlier today. Nice. Trying to get rid of that. COVID weight gain <laughs> from all that bread I've been making. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Things at home. Nice. Well, today on the show, we have Alan Hetherington. I met him in a hapiki class with Gabriel Policarpo. He's from Toronto, Canada. His performing experience spans many of the musical genres in the West where percussion can be found today. He has performed widely in North and South America and the Caribbean, Cumbia in Colombia, the Joropo tradition in Venezuela, Afro-Peruvian music in Lima, Peru, Cuban folkloric music in Havana, and today specializes in the many musical styles of Brazil. Since 1989, Alan has spent extensive periods of time residing in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. He's been performing with Sombra y Agua Fresca, Bale Brazil, Carlos du Cavaco, Chocolachi da Vila Maria, Henrique Casis, and Filo Machado. He has been a devotee of the samba school tradition of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, performing with some of the largest and most exciting baterias on the planet. He has studied and performed with great masters, including Mestri Tata Batera, Mestri Sergio from the Escolas de Samba Arco Iris, and Leois de Ortolandia de Jundiai. 
Mestre Sombra from Mocidade Alegre, Mestre Ogilon from Académicos de Grande Rio, Mestre Celinho from uh, Tijuca, Mestre Beto from Imperatriz, and Mestre Palau from Beja Flor. His eclectic background has allowed him to perform in a variety of musical settings, including with the Toronto Symphony, the Vancouver Symphony, John Wire and World Drums, Nexus, Hermeto Pasquale, Ginga, Andrea Borcelli, David Foster, Michael Michael Bublé, Tricky Sankaran, Evergreen Club Gamelan, Peter Erskine, Glenn Valles, Philo Machado, Celso Machado, and Henrique Casis, among others. He was a member of Ravi Nampali's critically acclaimed Indo-Jazz Ensemble TASA, which has toured North America, Europe, and Japan and recorded five CDs. He has also performed and recorded with many accomplished Canadian artists. He has made numerous recordings for television, film, and video, and has toured with ensembles or as a solo artist throughout Europe, North and South America, and Asia. Alan is the founder and director of Toronto's own Escola de Samba, G. Toronto, presently and presently teaches a course in Brazilian Bateria at the University of Toronto and the Royal Conservatory of Music and has traveled throughout Canada, the United States, and Japan teaching the tradition. Alan's Fantastica Bateria from the Escola de Samba G. Toronto toured Brazil in 2008, 2011, and 2016 to high acclaim. And today, the ensemble is considered one of Canada's principal cultural links to Brazil. A Fantastica Bateria, G. Allen, Hetherington, and Chocolachi, recorded in Sao Paulo and Toronto, is a percussion tour de force CD. I said tour G force. <laughs> is a percussion <laughs> tour de force CD that mixes traditional and contemporary idioms. Allen's Brazilian musical life is a subject of filmmaker Avi Lev's feature documentary, We Are Samba, which has Betch Cavallo, Mestre Samba, Mestre Ogilon, and others. Alan holds a bachelor's degree in music from the University of British Columbia, where he studied with John Rudolph, and he has a master's in music and percussion performance from the University of Toronto under Russell Hardenberger. Alan is a Sonar Drums and Contemporanea Instrumentos Musicais endorser. Do you like us? Andrew Z from Australia likes us. He signed up as a continuing supporter of the podcast. He's a subscribe supporter. So thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, that's super awesome. Diane and I love doing this podcast and we love having conversations with these people and we love interacting with you guys in the global in the global Brazilian percussion community. It is definitely a labor of love. We love doing this, but it's also labor. It takes time, equipment, and money to bring these conversations to you. So if you would like to help us keep these conversations going, go to ko-fi.com slash the Brazilian beat and join our community of support. The podcast is free and it is going to remain free, but it's not free to make. So if you would like to um, buy us a coffee, give us a little hand, that would be awesome. And thank you so much. There's also a free way to support us. Tell your friends, tell your friends who are also into Brazilian percussion about the podcast and uh, like and share on social media. Oh yeah. And you can also give us a rating. So if you go on Apple podcast and give us a star rating and leave us a review, that's a super free way to uh, support the podcast and it should fit your bu- fit into your budget perfectly thanks all of you who have donated um, over the 
last several months, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually, our, uh, our domain renewal and our website um, yearly annual renewal is coming up. So we, it's, uh, we have enough money to pay it off. So woohoo! Yay. <laughs> so thank you so much. If you guys need instruments and gear, go samba.net. Go check it out. I'm selling out of stuff right and left, so I'm making <laughs> making new orders from Brazil. So nice. we'll be stocked up soon, but still got all the accessories and everything you need. So go check it out, gosamba.net. So we hope you guys enjoy this episode with Alan, and we will talk to you on the other side. Today on the podcast, we have Alan Hetherington. Thank you for being here, Alan. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you have, in 1994, you started, um, now is it Samba Toronto or is it Escola G Samba G Toronto? <laughs> Good question. I've seen it in separate <laughs> ways. Well, I guess initially, it, it goes even before 94, we had a thing called Viva Brazil. Hmm. And that was um, that sort of turned into uh, the Escola de Samba. So I guess Viva Brazil was run by a bunch of people here in Toronto, and then we all kind of started doing our own thing. And I concentrated more on the music, uh, and so I called it the Escola de Samba de Toronto. Gotcha. So I guess, and officially, that's when I started doing it myself. Before that, it was kind of run as a collective. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, so can you tell us, you're up there in Canada, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? And your your training is in classical music. Can you tell us kind of how you grew up, where you grew up, and then how you went through the classical training in found Brazilian percussion? Sure. I, I, I'm a percussionist and a drum set player first, I guess. Um, I started, I, I was born in Toronto, but then I grew, I grew up in Vancouver. I moved there very young. I grew up in Vancouver and was always interested in music, you know. And then through high school and stuff, I played in the school band and played percussion and then decided uh, that I wanted to study it formally. And at that time, you could only study drums. I was playing drum kit sort of on weekends and rock and roll bands and stuff. But to, to actually get a degree in music, in percussion, you had to study uh, legit or whatever they call it, classical percussion. So I went to UBC and did my undergrad there. Um, and I started to bump into, you know, world music things. There's some s stuff going on in in uh in vancouver and i actually i had a girlfriend in my third year who took me down to columbia she actually worked down there she was she was uh born and raised in 
in uh, in um, Canada, but she taught at an American school. So that was my sort of first uh, taste of of uh, Latin percussion. Let's call it in South America. And I and I must say, like when I was a kid, I always sort of felt a huge um, attraction to African-based music, just the rhythm, the groove was always, but I, I have to say, like, I always sort of felt like I was born in the wrong place. I always had this sort of kind of sad sense of I'll never be able to do that until I went to, and it was a cultural thing, and, and I hate to say it, but it was almost like a racial thing because I kind of would look at Africa kind of like, you know, that's where the heavy stuff is. And, and I was born, you know, this white guy in North America. And I, it, it was, it was tricky for me because I always had a real strong sense of that African root and sort of looked at it as sort of yearningly until I went to South America the first time. And this was between my third and fourth year at university and I, uh, two things really stuck out for me. One was um, that not everyone who was dark-skinned had a really good sense of rhythm. That was a real epiphany for me. I used to think, you know, if you were black or from Africa or from the Africa diaspora, then you automatically had an amazing sensibility for rhythm. And when I was there, I, I realized that that wasn't the case. And, I, and, I, and that was really just, you know, my own uh, whatever, you know, I, I just, and then the other thing that I saw, amazingly enough, was that guys that looked like me had that amazing African feel. And what I, what I realized just sort of was that it was just basically interest and exposure. It wasn't the color of your skin. It wasn't where you came from. It was just, and in fact, I took actually a conga lessons from a guy who was from Curaçao, one of the islands in the Caribbean, and he was Dutch background, and he was living in Barranquilla, and it was amazing, because I studied with this guy, and he was fantastic drummer, um, and then and then it, it just really sort of dawned on me then and and I had taken down all my sort of drum kit stuff and my girlfriend at the time she was she was studying cumbia with an old gentleman from the interior of Barranquilla and I traded all my gear for all his drums so I came back with a whole pile of drums and he kept all my like I had a little drum kit sort of set up. He kept all that for his son and because he wanted his son to learn the drums. And so it, it was, it was for me, it was, it was a little bit of a kind of baptism in percussion multiculturalism. You know, it was something that really, as soon as I got back, I just, it sort of was the beginning of a transition that probably took another 10 years to actually fully um, manifest itself, but it was the beginning of, you know, this epiphany of percussion all over the world, you know, that it's basically, we all have the same sort of desire and it's about just being around it as much as you can live. And in today's world, it's kind of all changed so much because you can be around it live, but you can also be around it 
virtually, uh, which is incredible. You know, we're so lucky now to be able to to be involved in stuff virtually. You know, information now is just so readily available. And at that time, you know, it was it was very difficult to come across. So, you know, after then, I, I moved to Toronto when I finished my undergrad because I was not actually really, you know, I was working in the opera and I was playing drum kit on the weekends and playing a couple of Latin bands and stuff like that, kind of learning, still learning stuff. And I didn't really feel like I'd, I didn't really feel that I'd really reached the end. I could have probably just be a freelancer in Vancouver then, but. At the time, I, I, my teacher, John Rudolph, he, at the university, he recommended that I come to Toronto because um, his teacher and colleague was, was out here in Toronto, uh, and his name was Russell Hartenberger, and they, they played in a, a, a they, they had played together, but then there was a group out here of percussionists called Nexus. And at that time, they were kind of sort of the high priests of percussion. And they were, you know, Russell's still out here. And they were kind of known as the guys, the first generation of guys who had gone from orchestral percussion to study other cultures percussion. Gotcha. And they were, I had a group that was kind of blending those. Is that what? Yeah. And they, they're, and they're still around the bands called Nexus, but they, they've been around since the seventies. In fact, I think most of them were draft dodgers from the United States and they came up in the, around the Vietnam war. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, musicians are, they, you know, they want to yeah. play, they don't want to fight. So, so they came up and they were from kind of uh, different areas in, in and around, like I think, Rochester, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, and they formed this band, and I came out here to study with them, and I managed to get a scholarship at the university, but I really just came out to Toronto to just jump into the music scene, hmm. and, and going to university was just kind of a good excuse yeah. You lived in, I want to ask you about your time in Brazil. You lived in Sao Paulo for, well, you lived in Sao Paulo and Rio for many years. And you went there, I think, originally as part of a band. Is that right? To play? Well, actually, what happened was I was here in Toronto doing this, studying at the university. And I, I ended up playing with a Chilean guy who was playing Afro-Peruvian music, of all things, and he arranged for me to actually go down to Lima, Peru, and study Cajon. And, you know, I had sort of bumped into some Brazilian music, but I didn't really know what was going on. And I had planned this trip, and I, I'd actually, I was thinking in my second year of my master's or something like that, and I, I just decided, okay, I'm going to hang up this for a little bit. And there was a big scene of stuff going on in Toronto in all kinds of different cultures. And then and then I was planning this trip to go to Lima, and all of a sudden I'm like walking down the street, and there was this restaurant when it was closed. There were no windows or anything, and I could hear there was live music inside. It was like a Sunday afternoon. 
And I'll never forget this because I opened the door to this restaurant and there were like five guys gathered around a table with one light bulb over top of it. It was like a dark, dark room. And these guys were playing Pagodji, you know, and at the time I had no idea. I, I just saw, you know, five or six guys having a great time in all these percussion instruments. And here I am, like, I sort of felt embarrassed at the same time because I thought, man, I thought I was a percussionist and I've never seen half of these instruments. And it was just, <laughs> it just bewitched me right then and there on the spot. And one of the guys in the band spoke English and he said, hey, you know, come on over, sit down. And I told him, you know, I was a drummer. And of course, what I always do, this was always a good thing for me, if, if, if there was drum, if there were drums around or a lot of drummers around, I would say I was a percussionist. And if there were a lot of percussion, if there was a lot of percussion around, I claimed to be a drummer. So I could always plead ignorant on, on one side or the other. But anyways, I said, you know, I was a drummer and I was planning on going down to South America. And the guy said, oh, great. You're going to Peru. Well, we're all going down to Brazil for carnival. And he, and why don't you come and visit us? Just sort of like, you know, as fr as friendly Brazilians do, they immediately invite you to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, you know, go for dinner or come for a churrasco or whatever. So I got his, I got his name and address and I just sort of thought, you know, I didn't really take it that seriously. But when I was down in Peru, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this. And I got on a bus and I hitchhiked and I walked and I <laughs> went over the Andes Mountains. It was an amazing trip both ways and uh, and ended up in Sao Paulo. And these guys were from Junjai, which is a small town about an hour's north of Sao Paulo. And uh, ended up with them. And Carnival had just finished. I'd actually spent Carnival in Peru. But uh, anyways, the guys knew that I played a little bit and they invited me to sit in and I started playing drums first and they, and I just hang around with them. And finally, you know, it was about time to go back. I, I was there for about a month. The guy said, Hey, listen, come back next year and you can play in the band. I'll give you, you know, I'll pay you to come and play. So I played in that band for Sombra and Agua Fresca is the name of the band. I played in that band for 12 years. And you played drum set, right? I, well, actually, what I did was I, I played. It was kind of a really interesting transition. It was kind of like being at school because it was this band that sort of played every style of music. And, you know, we would do anything from musica sertaneja, you know, country music to axé. At that time, you know, the the whole scene, the Olodum thing and Daniela Mercury and, you know, Banda Eva, all those bands were like huge. They were mm -hmm. sort of the big thing. Plus, the, the, the other thing was that at that time too, samba in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo was really popular music. I mean, it was on the radio all the time. And what they would do is, and I caught the very end of the vinyl record releases. And then after that, it was CDs. But uh, they would release, and they still do this. They, they release the, the sambas for the year, like in November, October, November, on a, on a recorded release. Mm -hmm. And then at that time, they would become really popular on the radio. So yeah, you'd, yeah. like of, about 12 of them, you know, they'd release between 12 and 14. 
about six of them you had to kind of know if you played in this band, which was really awesome for me because, like, right away I would have to sort of learn six or seven sambing heads every year. But I started playing drums, and then, like, and literally they would just let me play Marsha at the beginning because it was really straight ahead. Right, right. (laughs) And then they'd say, and and the drummers would kind of go, hey, let the gringo play, you know, he, he loves to play. And so I'd sit there for, like, three hours and play Marsha. Because these bands, too, like we'd start at 11 at night and finish at 4 or 5 o'clock in the mm-hmm. morning. So sure. this, and without stopping, the band never stopped. So they would sort of let me. And then little by little, I'd sort of have to prove myself. Yeah. And I would study with the guys in the band. Uh, I literally would go to their houses whenever I could. And they would, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, come over on Saturday and I'll show you. And I took lessons with them. On all the percussion instruments. So I, I sort of learned by being in the sort of hurricane of it all. And then they started throwing me up front with a couple of these guys who would play tambourines and all the sambang head of things. Because the other thing, too, was because I could read. And this was a huge funny thing with these guys, too. Like, I would show up. I would lift all the tambourine parts. I remember the first time this this happened because you know, the, the band leader said, listen, I want you to also play tambourine because I can see you can play some tambourine. You're learning the thing. So the, the other two guys are really excited because they want to play with you. And so I thought, oh, my God, that's like six or seven sambin handles I got to learn. So I'd lift all the parts, like literally listen to the things, write out all the parts, and I'd think, oh, man, I can't memorize all this in time. I'm going to have to, like, have a chart in front of me. So I'd show up in a rehearsal with these charts and – you know, not everybody in the band could read, and certainly things have changed a lot over the years. Like what I've really noticed is, as a result of globalization, that we're trading back and forth all kinds of stuff. But generally speaking, the percussionists in these bands weren't really readers, but they had really good memories. And what what I noticed, I showed up and I'd and I set up a music stand and they'd all sort of laugh at me and the band leader would sort of you know egg on the other guys look this guy's done his homework he knows all these tunes and then i realized that the other two guys they just sort of made up stuff as they went along they didn't really lift it Uh, (laughs) so they had their own little ways of doing stuff but it was really good for both of us because then they saw that i was taking it really seriously and and they sort of rose to the occasion they went wow like the guy this guy's serious so we better learn it too so we really helped each other out and, we, and and in a very, you know, humble and respectful way. I mean, I certainly didn't show up trying to outdo anybody. In fact, I was trying to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, th- that was a big thing. And then, I, I, you know, this was in a small town just north of Sao Paulo. And, you know, I went back and forth for a while and then I finally just stayed there. I just kind of thought, you know, the whole thing with you know, like I had more work actually in Brazil doing stuff because from Junjai, I would go into the city and then I met some musicians in the city there and I got involved in Mocidade Alegre because uh-huh. I, would act, I would actually go to the Contemporaneous store. That was sort of my big, I would go there from Junjai and just spend my money, all the money that I made, I would just buy instruments. And then what I would do is I would buy as much, as many instruments as I could 
and then come back here and sell them. So I got to hold on a second. So you would go <laughs> down there every year or you went down and stayed? For... Well, well I, the first couple of years I would, I came back. Mm -hmm. And this would right. be like the early nineties. You were saying from vinyl it to was, CD. It was actually the first year. I think I went down was like 88. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the first time it, in that band in Sombre Agua Fresca, one of the percussionists was a mastery of an Escola de Samba there, Arco Iris. And he invited me the second year that I was there, he invited me to play in the bateria. So that was the first bateria that I played in. Gotcha. And then and then I think maybe the third year, I like a couple of years I came back with gear like basically mm -hmm. like the, like the work would sort of slow down a little bit in Jinjai and then so I would take all my money and I thought well you know what I, I these and back then too like the difference in money was just insane like I could I I wasn't making a lot of money in Brazil in terms of the the exchange but I could buy instruments and then come back to Toronto and I would sell them Mm -hmm. uh, and to the point where, you know, the biggest Canadian retail musical instrument uh, store ended up being interested. So I would just sell them to them. And then eventually what I did was just hook them up with Contemporanea because yeah. it, it, it was, a, it was, a, but by that time I was living down there anyway. So, so then I stayed there for I don't know, about seven years or something. Oh, I probably okay. came back during that time, maybe once or twice. Which is where you got, well, I guess, so the first few years, you were learning Portuguese then, I guess, right? Well, I studied Spanish, and the first year, so I studied Spanish formally, and which is an excellent learning tool for Portuguese. Mm -hmm. I tell this to everybody, because Portuguese, especially Brazilian Portuguese, it's kind of a mess, you know, like, like depends on where you are. They conjugate verbs differently and the pronunciations and their accents and everything's a little bit crazy. But I, I actually, the first year that I went, the first time I went, the first time I played in that band, I spoke Spanish and that, which was really crazy. Cause like I, everybody could understand me, but I couldn't understand anybody else. Okay. So I, I kind of learned Portuguese on the street and to tell you the truth I just for the longest time down there especially when I was involved in the Escola de Sambas I just kept my mouth shut like I just because <laughs> that's, I, a, I that's a good way to go <laughs> you know what it's a really, yeah it's a great way to learn because and if you think about it too I, I would sort of think about this sometimes I think well you know when you learn a language it it takes you at least two years or maybe three years from the beginning of your life. You just hang around and listen to people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and I remember the first time I went to South America speaking very little Spanish. I, I was embarrassed. Cause I saw all these kids around me speaking and I'm just like, man, I'll never get this together. But then I studied really hard. And then when I went down again, to Peru, I, I was well versed in it, but then when I crossed the border into Brazil, it was like walking into this fog. 
But I, but through the studying of the instruments, I actually, because a lot of places where I went, you know, like I would go to Hossin or something on my own, I'd go to some of these favelas where it was really dangerous. So I would just keep my mouth shut <clears throat> until I found somebody that I thought I could trust. And I just sort of, I, th- I, had, a, I had enough experience with traveling in South America that I knew how to sort of put on this air of sort of feeling like showing that you're, you know, part of the woodwork. I think move, when you move through the world and also when you move into a, a new culture, you know, a culture that's not yours and with, as far as language or, or learning percussion, keeping your mouth shut and just listening a lot is more important than yeah, observing. speaking or playing or yeah. like trying to sh- prove yourself totally. or whatever, like totally. kind of letting go of the ego and... Well, you know, I was very, very fortunate. Like, I, I, I honestly, I've been blessed in my life. I, like, every day I get out of the bed, I get out of bed and I give thanks to the universe because my experience in Brazil was really, like, and is, continues to be, um, 
like a, you know, it's, I don't really feel so much like a, a, a what's the word? I, I feel like when people say, you know, you're Canadian or whatever, I say I'm an earthling, you know, in Portuguese, say te you because I, I feel like, especially now in today's world, like we're all, we're closer than we've ever been. And I sort of feel like my experience in Brazil was kind of the beginning of that bridge because when I first went there, there were no, there were no foreigners. Like when I was in Jinjai, people would call the owner of this band and say, I want to meet a guy who doesn't speak Portuguese. You know, they just, and now you go down there and there's like an English school in every corner. Right. And then the same thing. Like when I went, when I went to Mose da Alegre in Sao Paulo, there was, there was nobody like people would even ask me in Sao Paulo. They go, why do you want to go to the, samba school i'd be like what are you talking about it's like the greatest thing in the whole world people right? still say that though yeah they do for sure sometimes they do but i think musicians now understand and the whole and the whole movement now is a global movement but you know i i feel really blessed because when i was there like now you know when i was there at the time it was just nobody really even thought twice about letting me play and now so many people, and I've seen this, I've actually, I was down there and I see guys sort of showing up and they don't speak Portuguese and they show up and they sort of say, hey, you know, I'm a drummer, can I sit in kind of thing, you know? They don't speak very well and they think because they can hold a, a, a pair of sticks in their hand that they, they should be able to play. And they don't really understand the whole cultural thing that goes that goes with that whole with the with the whole movement that's called Yusama. I mean how how they even decide who gets to play and you know there's the escolinas that happen the whole the year round there are guys who basically they they live in the area and they see people playing the bateria and they say man I want to do that they go talk to the master and the master says you know show up in April when we start our course and they go from April all the way the whole cycle and they work their butts off to try to get to play in the bateria and then you know i've seen guys show up or, or people have asked me even you know can can you get me into this thing and i'm like man i wouldn't even try and and i have a lot of friends who are brazilian <laughs> yeah. percussionists too who 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 feel like they they get out of the loop a little bit and uh or you know they live outside of brazil for a year or something and and they know that you don't just sort of show up and jump in yeah it's, sort of, it's a little north bit of americans a, i don't know about europeans but i know the north americans the are kind of getting yeah north americans are kind of getting a reputation for showing up and expecting to that their presence is <laughs> i don't know not i mean what am i trying to say People have gotten a reputation, you know, of showing up and expecting to play, and and it's. Um, well, I think it's. Yeah, I think it goes thing. with. It's this. It's a cultural thing. It's a. It's a, a, a cultural misunderstanding, and I think that's the other side of globalization. Uh, I mean, I think one sense is that we do have access access to this culture to these other cultures and they have everybody has access to other cultures but now we have to in everything i mean we have to kind of work a little bit more and try to be as open as we can to understand i mean it's it's kind of basic 
stuff that, you know, our parents hopefully taught us. But, you know, I, I've had to go through situations where professional musicians, professional percussionists, you know, they, they, and you know what, and I see it, 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 it happens in Brazil too, where people uh, don't understand that you have to go through the whole rigmarole and it's not necessarily a cultural thing. You know, I mean, you yeah. say, I mean, I think it is a cultural thing, excuse me, but I think it's not necessarily exclusive to, you know, the North American going down there. I think right, it's right. more a sense of, it's a sense of cultural ignorance, really. It's just you show up to a place and you think it's really cool. And I think also there's just, you know, it's funny. Like I saw, I, I, I watched, what was I watched? Uh, oh, I watched a movie yesterday with Audrey Hepburn. What's that famous one that she's in? It's called... Uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's? That's the one. And where it's where there's a sort of age of respect and even you know uh, we've lost some of that a little bit i think in in the globalization i think in a sense there's um we have access to all these different ways of being now and i think sometimes not feeling self-assured enough sometimes we overstep our bounds and i think that's just part of human nature i think it happens i've seen it happen both ways i've seen it happen here i've seen it happen in brazil i guess my original point was that i just i i feel so blessed that i was able to be in a place where i was openly welcomed as just a guy who wants to play and i really did my best to kind of you know, fill the prerequisites of what it took. And if that meant I had to, you know, live in Brazil for a while, then that's what I was going to do. But isn't uh, that just kind of, that's kind of, that's human connection. Like, yeah, right. I mean, it isn't, it, I don't know. I think that that's, pro that's the way to go is respect the community, go and get to know people. You love the culture so much. You went down there, you spent time, you learned like, I don't know. And I think it was really the drums that I love because I, and I was also really, really well trained with excellent teachers before being involved in Brazilian music. And to be honest with it, they're the ones, I mean, first my parents educated me and then these guys musically educated me. I mean, mm -hmm. And the idea, and it's funny because it's interesting. I, I studied a, a little bit of Cuban tumbadoras too, and it was the same thing. It was like, you know, don't speak until you're spoken to, uh, you know, look, but don't touch, you know, like to actually, you have to be invited to actually strike the drum, you know, you, you like the, you, you give your whole, the whole scenario away if you grab a stick and just start hitting the drum in front of your teacher, right? So, and, and there was at that time, especially, there was a lot of, there was a lot of that sort of, what do you call it? It's kind of like a hermetic clan, you know, like, and, uh, you know, when we were talking with Gabriel, he was he was alluding to that a little bit where, you know, you come to this place in the air of mystery and, you know, your dreams, everything is there. Right. Like you hear the, the magic of that drum and you see these 
elders there and you want to you know that your way to that drum is through them you know because they're the guys in charge so you want to do whatever it is that they want you to do and i tell you i learned that from my first teachers in classical music it's it's the same thing and it's and it's a musical thing it's this kind of sensibility of you know you prove that you're that you're worthy of that energy and you do it by studying hard and getting the right kind of sound out of a drum and it could be something that is and and often it's like one strike of the drum have you taken that sensibility um to your group in toronto by um you know requiring a certain level of of skill before people can join or perform or how, how have you how have you taken that into your projects um I don't require a level of skill in terms of technique, but I certainly require that kind of idea of, you know, respect or whatever, you know, like there's there, you know, every once in a while you get sort of, you know, guys who come in with kind of funky attitudes and it, and it's funny because I learned that too. Like you learn that from, from the masters. They, they know, like I'll never forget when, Oji Long from from Granji Hugh. He I saw him at one point, a bunch of guys sort of showed up like a week before Carnival wanting to play. And he just said, Okay, cool. Like he I mean, I was sort of aghast. I thought, how could these guys do this? But he gave me one of the greatest lessons. He basically he said, Okay, guys, line up against the wall, right? And he put a cash on every one of them and they're sort of looking around. Some of them are, you know, some of them are really cocky and some of them are kind of like, Oh, okay, cool, this is neat. And then he basically went one by one and said, Okay, play the kasha. Play the the kasha lick, you know? And not one of them could do it correctly. Right. So it was just really easy for him to just go, Oh, okay, well come back next year. And boom, next, okay. Okay, come back next year. <laughs> he just knocked them all off, and you know it was at that at that time when you're like you know a week before carnival. It's it's I'm sure those guys get that all the time, but um, in terms of what goes on here, you know, I it, it's more of an attitude. If you have a really good attitude about the thing, and in fact at the conservatory now they sort of take care of it for me because people sign up for a course and I have a beginner's course and an advanced course, but at the university, I also teach at the university and they're all musicians. So they, you know, they come in already sort of with that kind of pedagogical understanding from the beginning. So it, it's, it's, it's a different dynamic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and it, sometimes you know, though, there's a, there's a, when people come in with a, they've, learned a certain level say in classical music or um somebody with a lot of chops they they look at the music as it's written on the page and they kind of look down their nose at it oh this is easy but they don't realize all the the swing and 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 sauce that goes into it you know what i'm saying and it ends up sounding really stiff so it kind of be, can be a barrier to learning sometimes i found well you know that that is a whole I, I swear that's a doctorate thesis that you're talking about. Right <laughs> no, it literally is. And in fact, one of uh, one of the guys that I played with quite a bit, Enrique Cazes, who's a Cavaquinho player 
in Rio de Janeiro. He was actually asked to do his doctorate in the swing, Brazilian swing, and he de he declined. And and you know, it's very interesting because I and I think most musicians would agree that every style of music has swing. Like if you want to play rhythm and blues in a band with a bunch of guys who have been playing rhythm and blues and you show up with, you know, you know, an eighties four on the floor kind of rock feel or yeah, yeah, sure. a jazz sure. thing. If you've been studying Elvin Jones all your life, you know, it takes, it requires a certain element of understanding where that is. And I, I sort of, I think it's really akin to like, um, language you know it's really like you can yeah, show up accent. with a yeah with accents and and dialects i mean even you know when when i was in brazil at the very beginning i i remember i went i was once again blessed by the universe to do a to go on a mini bateria trip from mocidade alegre i was playing mocidade alegre in sao paulo and we were invited, first time uh, Grupo Especial from Sao Paulo was invited to uh, Festa da Bateria, Bateria Party in at Tijuca in Rio de Janeiro. And so 40 of us got on a bus. And at that time, I mean, uh, you know, I was like, I don't know, 22 or 23 or something like that. And I just thought, wow, this is going to be great. But like now I look back and I think like that would never happen. Like nowadays it would be so difficult for somebody like me to be involved in that kind of being that close, unless you really just decided, okay, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to move there and, and stay there and be a part of that thing. But anyways, we went and we performed and the, the master, uh, master Sombra, who's still there. He, um, really worked us hard and we had this whole kind of choreographed really great show he worked really hard he had studied a little bit too with Ojilon and some of the guys in Rio but he um we did the show at, at this bateria party and the next day on the front page of the newspaper it said Paulistano sabe samba sim the 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 guys from Sao Paulo know how to samba yes and when I saw that, I, I was so taken aback because I, I just thought, that's so weird. Like, why wouldn't they? Like, I mean, Samba's from Brazil. Like, everybody should know. And then I started to really understand that that kind of regionalism or that kind of idea of, you know, the other exists. Like, we think of it now, you know, what you just touched on was very true. It's like, you know, sometimes people show up and they've got a bit of technique and they play and it sounds kind of stiff because they, they haven't been around it. But man, like, the Cariocas and the Paulistas, they had that same sort of thing. And if yeah. you talk to and if you talk to somebody from Bahia too, the Bahians would be like, ah, those Cariocas, they think they know how to samba. Samba's from 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 Bahia. Right? And and so and you still have that a little bit, but mostly from the old guard, because I think now what's happening now is samba's a global thing. And it's been probably since the 60s or 70s, you know, when Fundo de Quintal went to Japan. Like, they sort of started that. 
Um, but I guess it was the late 70s, 79, I think. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, today, the kind of thing that you're talking about is the same kind of thing that the Cariocas would be saying, you know, this, the Paulistas, they don't have that thing, <laughs> you know, right? They still say it, though. That's still, well, I, heard, them, I keep hearing yeah, it from, yeah, from you people. Do, eh? Oh, yeah. From younger people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even from younger people. Yeah. That's funny because I it's don't just, hear I think it's like, like regional accents in, with language, like you were saying. like, And I don't think I could have heard it before more recently now that I'm listening um, as I, you know, as I've spent more time with the music. It's just a, due to exposure. And I'm listening to um, these, you know, YouTube channels that play. Um, you know, all the ensayo technicos in Rio and in, in Sao Paulo. And then I can, I can, I'm starting to be able to hear the difference. And then now if something comes on, that's like, say in a completely other country, say in Singapore, I hear it. I'm like, that sounds weird. I'm like starting to, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I'm starting to be able to hear the differences in accent. You know, maybe they're all still speaking for instance, they're all still speaking English, but they've got a different accent, you know, and it's almost impossible. I mean, I think unless you go there, like you said, and study, study, study and play a lot, like I don't, I'm not sure. Well, it's, you know, that's why I say it's kind of like a doctoral thesis because it's, it's like the closer you get to trying to understand it, the actual, like the further you actually get, you know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's it's true because then you start to, you start to pick apart, okay, is it the guy and where's the guy from? Well, and each school has their own each like, school has their own swing. So, yeah. Well, here's a story too. I could tell you, man, I got a million stories. But the first time I saw uh, Monoblocco, they were just starting out, and I was like flabbergasted because to me, I I saw them and I thought, man, they sound like this gringo. Like they sound like the group that I have in Toronto. <laughs> you know i was just like wow and then i started to realize is that like a lot of the players were from zona sur they're from the south part of rio de janeiro and they hadn't played from yeah well and you know what's interesting i i i mean it'd be interesting to talk to someone about it but um what i found was that a lot of them were getting into it because of the exposure that that samba was getting outside of the country mm. right like a lot of a lot of a lot of people were starting to see that you know wow this is starting to really catch on like by that time you know japan had like samba school league in tokyo and osaka had stuff going on and, and you know there was stuff going on in europe um but you know i think that whole concept it's like you can kind of get into it and talk to it about it a bit but then in the end i think basically it's like you know it's 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 so nebulous that it's almost not worth it it's like better to just kind of go and practice some more or something Mm -hmm. yeah totally there's a guy here in the states he lives in seattle now uh mehmet he listens to the show i Diana, do you want to say his last name? I've never been able to pronounce his uh, name. No, it's, it's um, Turkish. <laughs> yeah, he's Turkish, and he's he's written a 
gosh, did he write a thesis? He's done a lot of study on the swing and what it is and the different different ones. And someone, I did read a paper once, someone had, um, you know, if you were going to count it out, like how would that be possible? And it was basically the paper concluded you'd have to subdivide um, each measure into it was like 42 sub beats to be able well, to I mean, like, and then, to it's be like honest, there's no point in counting it is basically the point well, of the paper like you just need to feel it well you know i i mean and i have to say and i hate you know i i would say that it gets to the point of being almost ridiculous you yeah, know it, it gets is. to the point but you know what i would say like in my in my experience what African diaspora music has, and Brazilian in general, I think if you want to generalize as much as possible, you basically have uh, fours and threes uh, concurrently being played. So the idea, right. if you're playing, if you're playing, a, if you're dividing a beat into four, there is a sub three mm-hmm. going on. And the, and the idea, and you know, Cuban music does this great. Like it's Cuban music to me is like the meeting of the African diaspora with the Russian discipline, right? Because you have extreme discipline and extreme, like, you know, the tokis are really, you know, when you're studying with these guys, they're very specific about things. And in my experience, uh, there, there is that idea, and a lot of the guys like to study. You know, let's study four four subdivided sixteenth notes and four four as twelve eight, so right. subdivided triplets. Right. Yeah, and basically be able to kind of hear both of those at the same time. And I mean, I, I can't do that, but I know there are guys that do it. And and I would I would say if you want to sort of generalize with an African diaspora and Brazilian, that you have that kind of thing going on, mm-hmm. and that sort of gives it that sort of idea of a lilt. But but how it is and where it is, and you know, each guy sort of does it a little bit differently. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I studied I studied Pandera with these guys in this band who were you know these big honking great they were great dancers and they could twirl the thing and they had a monster feel and i worked really hard to get that sort of you know i had that sort of thing working on it really hard and then i went to rio de janeiro when i went to rio de janeiro i studied with kind of you know the guy at the time was just starting to get uh a bit of a name for himself marco susano and that was you know he now is like he's kind of considered to be sort of the father of this mm-hmm. style. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he looked at me playing, you know, like a plastic Pandero and playing that, you know, sort of that lilt with the, with the last 16th note exaggerated. And he would say, that's not Samba, like right away the first lesson, mm-hmm. you know, and he had a different feel mm-hmm. and his feel was, you know, sort of a short, little bit more refined idea he liked to ex- accentuate the second 16th note too i noticed and of course right, as, you're, right. as, you're, as you're studying this stuff as from a classical perspective which i was it was always like you know micro to macro uh, so i would try to get it as you know understood detailed as possible but then in the end i thought man i'd love to get these like two guys together in the same room what they would say to each other 
you know, because they were quite different. And then in the end, I just thought, you know what, every time I'm near somebody who plays like Susano, I'll try to play like that. And every time I'm near these other guys on the, on with the stage, I'll try to play like that. Right? That's what I do with Hibiki in my different Hibiki yeah. classes. When I'm in Gabrielle's class, I, I play a certain way. And then when I'm in the class with the duetto guys, I have to play a, a different way. And I just have to remember to remember to, to, to switch. Well, and I think that's I think that's the best way to do it. And then what ends up happening is that you end up being your way in the end. Right. right? That's 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 my goal is in the end to f- kind of find my own my own path. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny you say that because that's exactly what I've been doing this during this pandemic is is trying to play in two different ways with with all the different instructors. Yeah. That's awesome. And you know, and I think that's completely the way that this stuff develops. You know, it develops that way is that you pay respect to the masters that you're around. And, you know, you don't try to get, you don't try to get too analytical about it. You know, we're getting, we're getting very analytical in our North American way, which is fine. You know, it's fine to talk about. And I tell you, like my, you know, teaching, I have to go there too. Like I will literally at the beginning of classes, I would say, one thing I don't want to hear from you guys is where's one, right? Uh, 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 but in the end, like about halfway through the class, halfway through the course, I'm giving them where one is, mm-hmm. right? And But what I try to teach them is that paradigm of, and this is an African diaspora thing too, is melodies. These Every single right. one of these things is a melody. So even the surdo, I'll say it's... there's a melody there's two separate now the funny thing is when i was first playing (laughs) it would be one two that's how they would say it to me except one is really if you write it on the page is b2 right but they would call it one because it was the primera marcação, mm-hmm. right? So it's the first marcation or whatever you want to call it of the beat for them, right? Now, when I say them, <laughs> right, it's like people who are schooled in the in the Samba Samba tradition, whereby the heaviest beat is two, or I would say two and four if you're in four four time, right? So and that and that right off the bat, especially the musicians at the university, they freak. They're like, "Whoa, that's awesome! I never heard it like that." And so you know, and especially the jazz guys, they like it even better. They're like, "Oh, that's so cool," because that African diaspora, the idea of this sort of hermetic, you know, we're on the in that that happened in in America too. This idea of the jazz, especially in bebop, the idea of we know what's going on, even if the audience doesn't know what's going mm-hmm. on. Now that now that sort of in jazz, they took it to another level. But in 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 folkloric music in in the African diaspora, or let's just stay in Brazil, and especially specifically in samba, there is a lot of that. Like half of the fun, as you know, is like playing some cool stuff that it takes you a while to get your head around it, right? 
like you know especially syncopated syncopated things like the repeniti i mean i remember going into hosea and seeing like a 12 year old kid just like walk out of the crowd there was a, a rep on the on the ground and he just walked up to it and you know he starts playing all this and like, none of that stuff starts on one mm-hmm. right like they start on on the anticipated beats often right and that same thing that when you say that to people, they think that that is on a beat. Right, right. And those are two last sixteenth notes of of, mm-hmm. of beat four, right? And even like you know, I have guys from the symphony or the opera orchestra or whatever, and they love it because it's so wow. I never knew. And that's and that's the art and the and the beauty of this music is that their voices, their melodies, and their interconnected melodies that have a relationship to each other. Like every instrument has a, a like a, a little kind of part of the fabric that you're taking. Mm-hmm. And you can, of course, the idea is, is, especially with improvising through it, is that you will go into other people's fabric but the more of those voices that are in the choir, the less you will take up their space. So, for instance, in a battery of an Escolage Summer, where you have basically, you have all the spectrum, they keep it simple, right? They keep it as simple as it can, and each voice has a specific voice. But then, if you if you're if you're in like a little you know in a bar with a trio or something, and a guy has a setup with a bunch of different things, he he can, you know, his tambourine parts might be a lot more ornate because he's he's allowed to, or the or, or the space will let him do that. Yeah, it's easier to sometimes when when it's fewer people to play the more complicated stuff and make it sound clean when you're in like a giant group it's hard to yeah but the trick is you have you have to be in that giant group to understand where all those voices are and and i and to be honest with you that is the biggest challenge uh teaching this stuff is it especially drummers like drummers show up and they they basically they want a collection of oh can you just send me all these parts and i'll work on them or whatever but they don't understand Mm. and it's really it's really easy to sort of show that like there are ways of sort of like there are certain rhythms like for instance the the estasio de south thing that that Gabrielle was showing it, that sort of, that sort of offbeat kind of thing. thing, Yeah. Yeah, Which happens a lot in, it happens a lot also in like Maracatu, that sort of, that sort of offbeat sort of rolly thing. Like a lot of guys have a hard time playing that without hearing it on, on a, on a beat, like, hearing those offbeat 16th notes they have a harder time to do it so you can convince them by just giving them a simple pattern that's syncopated enough they go oh yeah i better get that together so because there's certain parts of the language you know as you were alluding to kind of like accents it's like you know i i i I can't roll my r i can't roll my tongue and roll my r like you know the italians can or whatever you know because i never practice it and and unless you're from spain or whatever or from any of the english countries you can't make that th sound people go wow you're sticking your tongue out and you know like (laughs) 
That's the weirdest sound. So in the same way as a drummer, as a percussionist, or as a musician, there are, there are areas of our oral space that we just haven't practiced. But that's right. kind of what makes it so cool, right? It's, and especially especially students, they'll kind of go, whoa, I, I never thought something that looks so easy could be like, there's, there's something about that thing that you're yeah, doing that yeah. I don't understand. You but know? doing it also, though, I find that doing it just at practicing, you know, for that example of the, the hippiki part from Astacio, if just practicing that on my own with a hippiki, or I mean, with a metronome, and me is is difficult, right? But then when I put on, say, some Sometimes I, I've made these these audio tracks of different Escolans playing at different speeds. And when I play to that, it's much easier. So, I mean, during a pandemic, I kind of have to, right? Because nobody's getting together. At least we're not here in Portland. But um, playing when you've got the whole thing going, for some reason, it's easier than just with a metronome just beeping out the, <laughs> the beat for me. Mm-hmm. But Well, I think, I, think, I think it'll get to the point where it's embedded in your being enough yeah, that you'll yeah. be able to do both of those. I mean, I, th- yeah. I th- think the objective is that because it, 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 you know, and some of it's technical and some of it's like what I, what I would suggest sometimes for when I suggest to my students is to sing it first, mm-hmm. like to be able to sing the way it sounds. And, and, and that, to be honest with you, that's a universal musical message and 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 it's also a universal step that's difficult for a lot of musicians in any genre like you don't know how hard it is for me to get people you know to get 15 musicians in a room at a university to, to go boodle up boodle up boodle da da you know they sort of look around and go boodle what boodle, boodle, what, what is that you know and it's difficult until it's funny though like the what i find is the vocalists are the ones that usually do the best sure and sometimes they end up being the best players you know because they 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 have no no qualms at all about singing any kind of sound yeah yeah and sometimes piano players too like they they they're just like you know they're used to singing Uh, and i think that's a huge thing that was a big thing for me too from being down there is everyone likes to sing and they, the, the repertoires, they're like huge repertoires. Like, like you go, you go to rock and Rio and you'll see like some rock band from the United States playing and the crowd will be louder than the band. Right. And that you go to see any MEPB show or even in the Samba drum, you go in the Samba drum and the idea of, of those samba heads is to have at least one of the courses by halfway t- halfway through the parade, at least one of those courses, the whole seventy thousand people are singing them. Right, so singing is huge, and I can't I can't overestimate that really for for drummers and percussionists because a lot of times they just and and and, and you know that's. You know, there are a lot of guys who do like to sing. And and I would say non-North American percussionists are really 
great singers. There's something very vulnerable about singing that us as North Americans, <laughs> at least as Americans, we were, we're taught you have to be amazing to be able to sing. But I want to I want to redirect this conversation a little bit and and talk about the scene in Toronto. So there are there is so much going on Brazilian wise there. It seems like there you are there. You've got your program at the university and your community group. There's Samba Squad, Bloco Loco, Bakijibamba, Maracatu Aberto, Chibat. T dot batu. There's a lot going on there. Plus, there's um, there's Bossa Nova group. There's a Shoro group, right? Isn't there like a Faho scene, pagode? Yeah, scene, all kinds of stuff. Scene. There's so much going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I ask him why. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, well, you have a lot of. I guess my. I guess one of my questions is: You've got a years of experience running a community group, right? And do you have tips? Part of what the, we started this podcast was for people to encourage people who are thinking of starting groups or wanting to learn how to run their groups, their community groups better. Do you have tips for how to how to do that or advice to people who want to run a community group? Like maybe it's admin, maybe it's leadership structure or tips on getting gigs, dealing with money. You know, do you oh, have any? Oh boy, I could use some tips on all those things. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it's interesting. The, I, I think, to be honest with you, the more experience I get, the more I realize just how common uh, these challenges are. Oh yeah, for everybody. Yes. Like, like for you know, Mosidaji Allegri, you know, doing a little group, or for my little group, or you know, I used to think you know, how come I'm not getting enough gigs or what's going on? Like, and then all of a sudden a bunch of them would come and I think, well, wow, what did I do? Right. And it's, you know, it's, that's, it's, that's a very tricky conversation to be honest with you. I don't have any magic. Um, I would say, I would say perseverance is one. Uh, I would say, um, try to be as professional as you can and realize that it's not personal. Nothing's personal. Yeah. Um, because I, I, I think in this sort of, because, you know, I'm a professional musician, but the scene is kind of semi-professional. So I've been very fortunate to have a professional career as a percussionist and as a drummer, and then kind of have this hobby of being involved in the Escola de Samba sort of movement globally even. And I think they're kind of two different beasts. And, you know, the most professional ones are, of course, in Brazil. But even that, I mean, I started in a very small Escolage some like I said before, and I'll just keep saying I'm just so grateful to have been able to see the gamut. You know, I've been in the Samba Drome in Rio de Janeiro, the Samba Drome in in Sao Paulo, and I've also been in, you know, the Avenida whatever it is, I can't remember now, this this sort of main street in a small town of Junjai. And I live in a Canadian city, you know, that's snowy for three or four months of the year so it's really different i have a lot of different experiences and and i would just say that that, that, you know you just got to keep at it i sometimes i do see 
especially with some leaders, is it is such a personal thing for them, and it's a, it's so close to their heart. And a lot of time, there's a, a lot of sacrifice. You know, I see that even in the in the Toronto scene that, you know, some guys, they have a day job, they're working on some stuff. I don't know how they do it, to tell you the truth. They they have basically two jobs because running this kind of thing, you know, when I used to do it in the street, you know, it takes up a lot of your time. Yeah. And then what I, what I, what I have seen is that the investment of, of the, the guy who's in charge or the people, maybe if it's like two or three people who are in charge, you know, it's a daunting task. And sometimes some people just want to show up and just chew the fat with their buddies and play a few drums and then go home, you know, and sometimes they don't show up on time because it's, you know, maybe not as big a priority and you just have to be as professional as you can. And I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I've been very fortunate. So, I'm not involved anymore really on that sort of street level. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, the, the Escola that I have, the Bateria that I have um, runs through the conservatory uh, and, okay. and the, and the university. So, um, so I sort of, I, for me, it makes it so that I'm a little bit more detached. I like, like if it doesn't happen for me, it's not a big deal anymore. Yeah. Like, but it, but I know what it's like. Like I know the first years that I did it. In fact, I was also very fortunate here that before I sort of formalized what I was doing here, and basically what I was seeing was, you know, there were some basic things that were not nobody knew in Toronto. Like nobody knew how to start and stop a bateria. I mean, basically we showed up on a, at the beach and somebody started with a surdo and then somebody added another thing. And next thing you know, we were making a racket for an hour and then people got tired and they stopped. Right. Right. And, 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 and nobody we didn't knew know what we were doing, but we were definitely loud. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, that was kind of how it started here. And then, um, and it was a bunch of Brazilians, like a lot of these guys who are like Brazilians who, you know, played at soccer games or they play at parties or Chihuahuas or whatever. And they kind of didn't really know what they're doing. They had a good feel, right? Because they were around it. They grew up with it. And a lot of them, they were just doing it for fun. And then I would come back with a whole whack load of instruments and I would know how to go, you know, da, da, paraca, da, tum, tum, right? And all of a sudden I was like, oh, man, that's how you stop, you know? And it, it just sort of, from from these little bits, the sort of leadership role just ended up falling on my shoulders. And in fact, there was one guy who was kind of the leader, a Brazilian guy, and he he got stuck in Brazil. He couldn't come back. And uh, at that time, you know, way before 9-11, like he... You kind of needed a visa, but you could kind of get through without a visa sometimes. And he got caught without a visa and he gave me a call one day and he said, look, you're in charge. I said, what are you talking about? And then he just never came back. (laughs) So, you know, it it just sort of, it was an organic process to me. But at the same time, I had this sort of crazy thing going on in Brazil. So I would disappear 
Right. And that's kind of how Samba Squad kind of when ended did, up happening. When did Manino Costa show up, the nephew of Mestri Olgilan? Well, Manino was actually, it was a fluke because what happened was I was going to Grande Rio and I was going to Grande Rio. Why? Because the tambourine section that I played in in Mocidade in Sao Paulo, the guys actually said, couple of them were my buddies and they said, Hey, why don't you come with us? Cause we're getting on a bus tonight and we're going to Rio de Janeiro. I was like, well, of course, sure. I'm going to come. I said, yeah, we're going, we're, we play in, in, in Grande Rio in Caxias. Just tag along. So I tagged along and they, and they said, Oh, Gilano love you. Cause you know, you'll get to meet like a gringo guy who's into it. So basically they introduced me and, after a couple of rehearsals, they would sort of let me sit in and play. And I met Manino there. And he was, you know, sort of like this guy. He was, he was like, he was a great Repaniki player. And, you know, with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, a sort of cool dude, you know. And I met him. He was a really nice guy. And he sort of said off the, sort of off the cuff, he said, one day, why don't you take me to Canada? And... I just, you know, I never really thought about it. It was just sort of a joke. And then I was actually, I had a contract to bring 10 guys back to play at this thing called the Brazilian Ball here. And it was this big gala event. And that was like Bay City or something? Or what the, yeah, what was the it was like sort of, it was like, it was, uh, it was the gala event of the city it was a fundraiser it was like a thousand dollars to get in and you sat around a table and ate brazilian food and they had a little parade and at that time i think i was the musical director it was the first year i was a musical director they gave me a budget to bring 10 guys back here. that's and cool that would it be was, so much fun <laughs> it was great because it was it was basically i got to just bring back all the guys that I played with. Right. Or just everybody. Yeah. You could bring back all your heroes. Yeah. I brought back basically all my favorite guys that I was playing with. So we put this band together <laughs> and at the last minute, like maybe like a month before we were supposed to leave to come back here, my sort of first guru percussion guy his name was tata tata batera and he taught lessons above the contemporanea store in sao paulo and he was like and he's still there and he still teaches and he's in his 80s and he doesn't look 60 this guy he's he's fantastic and he plays drums and like all the drummers in sao paulo know this guy because he's a drummer and he's also a great percussionist he's originally from rio de janeiro but he moved to he moved to Sao Paulo when he was very young. And he actually, his son's name is Elvin Jones, if you can believe it. <laughs> yeah. This is a, this is my, it's a Camille Filho, Elvin Jones. And I'm like, wow, that's a weird name. And then I figured out that it was Elvin Jones. He called his son Elvin Jones, which up here would be just like hilarious, right? But anyways, he's he he couldn't make it at the last minute. He had to he had kidney problems, so he had to go to the hospital. He had to go have a, a kidney operation or something. And so I just kind of thought, ah, what the heck? I'll invite Manio, and he came with us. Uh, 
and he played in that group two year, two band, and then he decided to stay, and he just ended up staying. Cool. And he's been here kind of ever since. I think he's been back and forth a few times, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So you know, there is there's kind of a uh, there's a rich culture now of stuff that's going on. But I think in general, and you know, Manu and I talk about it too. You know, and I think he gets down a little bit more sometimes because I think you know it's it, he sometimes I think sees. And we both do. We both chat about it. And, you know, I think it's universal, you know, this whole thing of, you know, getting everybody to take it as serious as the guy who's running it, you know? Yeah. It's all. (laughs) Yeah. In in every sense, like in the musical sense, like take the music seriously uh, in the, you know, commitment sense, come up, come to all the rehearsals or, you know, like for instance, I, I see this happen a lot sometimes here where people will go out on a limb to get like some guy to come up from, I see the America two people, people do it and they do workshops and sometimes it's, you know, they bring up these big names and it's tricky to, to, you know, I'm not saying they're not well attended, but it's all, it, it, it's, it's a fight. You know, you've got to spend money on the space to rent and, you know, got to pay the guy and he's going to stay somewhere and all that stuff, right? It's definitely, uh, a, yeah, it's definitely a huge effort. We've actually, through this, um, through this class that you and I were both in with Gabrielle, I've been talking with the, with the folks in Mexico about maybe doing like a North American tour with him, if we could all share the expenses and then he could tour Mexico, United States, Canada, because, you know, we could all maybe coordinate something like that to make it easier, cheaper. Yeah. You know, this, I think Courtney is, I think the post pandemic thing will be an explosion of these kind of ideas. I I honestly, well, I, you know what I would, I would bet on it because I, I honestly believe that we are going to get into the roaring 20s of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that what's going on now is creating planting seeds. And I think what you just alluded to is the perfect example because I think in order for this now to be viable, uh, we need to take it up to that next level. And well, Diana I, and I, has been doing that. Yeah, I wanted to for a long time with, um, mm-hmm. like you were talking about with the. Well, I'll let Diana say it with the market yeah. folks in Canada. <laughs> yeah, um, my friend Eric uh, in Oakland and I have been uh, helping coordinate for one of our teachers from with uh, Alex too, right? Maybe, yeah, from with Alex Bordokas from um, sure, there in Alex, Toronto. Sure. So yep. it's. You know, we organize our teacher coming, you know, to the West Coast, to Brazil camp, um, to Austin, to back to Toronto. So, yeah, it's it's something that we've been do- been doing for so- several years. So, and it's worked That's out really awesome. well. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, Diana's and I think, the queen of organizing that kind of thing. Well, we'll have to keep talking with Diana then. <laughs> Diana, don't go anywhere. Okay, I'm here. <laughs> she's very quiet, well, and, but she's here. Well, and you know, I mean, and the thing is too, I think it, it, the other thing is to be able to go the other way because I've also taken a group down I was going to ask you about that. And I think, to be honest with you, I, I, I think 
part of this idea, uh, part of these bridges, uh, the education needs to go that way, I would even say more so, because um, in my experience, uh, trying to get and I know, Courtney, you've been down there for a while. I'm not sure, Diana, if you've had experience being in the place. Mm -hmm. But that is really the education that you want to give the the people interested in this. Because to understand, and, and, and especially, I think, uh, not the technical rhythm thing, but the expression and uh, the musicality and the creative nature I mean, I learned more about that as a musician from being in a Brazilian culture than even the Escolages Samba, per se. Like, just seeing how, you know, like living with people and how they're able to kind of, like, even just... Uh, you know, there's nothing to eat. And then like in 20 minutes later, somebody's created this like banquet of food. Like all of a sudden, I don't know, how did you do that out of, you know, out of what seemed like a bunch of sort of root vegetables in a bowl on the table? Like all of a sudden we had this amazing food and, and seeing how people are able to create in a way that is just, so impressive you know and i i think that to me is more and it and i think i've absorbed that myself to be honest with you i, I i've actually become my experiences in in the musical in the musical realm not in necessarily the brazilian one because i sort of consider myself a musician or a percussionist or drummer first and and the more contact that I have with Brazilian musicians, the higher up the scale they are, the more I realize that they have done, uh, you know, incredible amounts of studying of other cultures. Like two guys that I uh, consider to be very big influences are the Machado brothers, one of whom lives in Vancouver, Celso. And he's in, he, like, he's a fantastic guitar player in so many different genres. He's just studied so much, you know, he studied North African music and he studied Bach and he studied Spanish flamenco music. And, you know, he, he loves just anything. He loves sounds. And then his brother, Philo, who's originally from Ribeirão Preto, he, he, all, he lives in Sao Paulo. I brought him up a couple of times. And in fact, I brought the two of them up uh, with Philo's grandson, um, Felipe, who's who's kind of turning into a, a mini-me of Philo. They have a duo. They're both guitar players. And, like, I, I think the idea of being able to cross-pollinate cultures is sort of the next stage, in, not just in a musical way, but, you know, just language-wise and food and art and like how people cross the street even like just those kind of things I think those are the things that really make any kind of artistic expression what it is I totally and, agree with you but I want to I yeah. want to know on a practical level how did you and your group not kill each other when you were traveling around that's <laughs> always been my thing with group trips like I've done I've done group trips in other contexts and 
sometimes it can be great, but sometimes it can be kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I did the three times that I did it. The first, I had people help me for sure. The first time I went back to Junjai, so I went to my original mastery, we were off the beaten path. We spent one we spent one night in Sao Paulo and then we basically went like into the into the interior of Sao Paulo, which was a small town. It was really safe. We rented like a a chakra with a nice pool and we did workshops. We also played with this band that I played in for twelve years. So we did this kind of uh we did a like when they played the samba in handles we part of their show we played with them so we were brought out as these sort of special guests and that was amazing like they loved that so being able to play together is a big deal uh i think that makes it so people take it really seriously uh and and the second time i did it um it was it was a little bit more it was with Chocolache, who was the drum. He played drums with uh, Betch Carvalho for a long time. Um, but a good friend of mine, in fact, we did that record, mm-hmm. The Fantastica Bateria. Uh, Contemporanea helped us with that, put that together. And yeah, that we're was. Put links to that for sure. Um, well, that, that I mean, I'm I'd really love to enjoying do... that album. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's re- I mean, it, it, that to me was a result. And I think having those kind of projects. Uh, are is important and the interesting thing now this is why i say this stuff can can explode is the advent of audio visual uh and the <laughs> technical expertise of people that can operate that stuff makes it so now this might be not such a great thing in one sense but in another sense it's really good is it makes it so you can have participation at almost any kind of technical level because you can use editing. Mm-hmm. You can use, you know, you can say like, like what Gabrielle's doing, yes. you know? And in fact, I did the same thing with my students just uh, as soon as the pandemic hit, I thought, man, like it was like March and they were supposed to still have like another couple of months of of the course so i thought well let's do this idea and i already had tracks that i put down and then i got everybody to record and that is great and i honestly believe it's going to really contribute to the next stage yeah. next major stage of music a lot making. of people can... have been doing that which is kind of cool yeah different... everyone and their dog is doing the it thing right? about yeah. gabrielle's project that we were involved in is that he kind of took it to the next level with professional editing people mm-hmm. popping in and out but, and all over the well, world. and that's what i'm saying that's though cool. is that yeah. it, is that that is the next that is mm-hmm. the next stage it's like getting guys involved that are professionals that can do that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you can do it. You could, you can basically do it with anything now. I mean, I, I, my, my basement now is a little recording studio too. So basically we've cut out the middle person, but the, how the end product ends up being is dependent upon, you know, whether you get a professional involved. Or totally. Like and I can do it, but it doesn't look so good. You know, it looks like amateur video work, but um, yeah. what he had and, done, and, like he hired some people to do it. I assume he hired. Yeah, he had, had, he had Helio. Yeah. yeah. 
and planned it yeah. out too. He was, you know, they had people say, Oh, you know, wear a plain shirt and have it a plain background and have your head just two inches within the frame. And you know what I'm saying? Like they, they set it up well too for. Yeah. And I, th- and I think good. in all, in all these things, like in terms of, you know, bringing people up, taking people down, having these cross cultural things that are going on. Um, I think that, like I said, I think that's the next thing. And it is a matter of having people like Diana around who, who can really organize this stuff, right? Because now we, at our fingertips, we have a tremendous amount of resources. Like I would say, for instance, if I was to do something again, which I will do, I would do kind of the same idea that you're saying is like, you basically, you need to have as many spots as you can within a, within a, you know, a a realistic limit of where, whoever it is you want to bring up can come up. And then I think the other thing too, is you need to give, uh, you need to give them a forum of both the workshop idea, the teaching idea and the performance idea. Mm -hmm. Right. So for instance, um, you know, if you were going to bring up a percussionist, you want to maybe have a situation where you can throw a band together so he can do some playing on one of the nights. Right. One of our challenges here in the United States is they've really shut us down as far as bringing people up on, it's really hard, difficult to get like an artist visa and you can do these cultural exchange things actually make money. And then I don't know what it's like in Canada, but it's, it's, it's way different. Because I know as a Canadian musician playing in the United States, even people, Canadian musicians have stopped doing it yeah. because we kind because of can't have anybody come here, which freaking sucks. Cause yeah. And you know, what's so ironic is that you guys, you could literally show up at the border. Not now. I mean, now it's whole, like, let's say pre-March right. pre-pandemic American musicians don't even need a visa. Like I can, I can bring Brazilians up. They don't need, they need what they call a visitor's visa, which is basically a tourist visa. It takes like two right? minutes to get online. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of the guys that I, that I bring up now uh, are friends of mine and they've got some traveling under their belt. So getting a tourist visa, or I mean, they call it tourist visa, but it, it's officially called a visitor's visa. They don't, as a musician, you don't need a work permit. Because you're considered that it's only temporary and right, it's not. Can worth you it. legally pay them, or is it all under the table? Yeah, no, I pay everybody. I know, but legally, like on the books, style. Yeah, mm. yeah, I mm. can, I can, I can give them whatever, and I can, you know, take it off my income tax, and they can yeah. declare it on their no, income we, tax. We can't and, do that. <laughs> yeah, your situation, I think, is a little bit different. I, I know, even like, as a visa for us is to go down there it's like over a thousand dollars now. really wow yeah it's it's insane and, and and you know i used to actually play with people on tour that w- would go to the states and now people just don't go anymore because it's too expensive or even just to visit oh i i would go to visit but i mean we don't need a visa to cross the border i see what you're saying to oh, work yeah to yeah. work and nobody wants to take the risk of you know, if you're a professional musician, you don't want to get blacklisted by crossing a border. Yeah. And, 
And you know what I would say, too, is that I would say that all this stuff that we're talking about is almost anachronistic because we still have to wait until this crazy yeah. pandemic finishes. And then when it does, when dust starts to settle, like lots of rules might be remanipulated to stimulate the kind of stuff that we want to do. Well, and we we have a new administration coming in, so hopefully that yes, yes. So a, a lot of this up. So I mean, I would I would almost say, and uh, you know, I say this to a lot of my musician friends who are kind of like, you know, down in the mouth because they're not getting any work. I'd say like now's the time to prepare for yeah. when the yeah. when the floodgates exactly. open, exactly. and to do the research, and even some of this this you know exchange this kind of cultural exchange that we're doing vis-a-vis -vis some of these you know lessons that are going on i have to start teaching again at university now and i have to come up with a whole curriculum that's online and and it's awesome like i'm i'm ex i'm excited about yeah, it you know i'm excited about because basically what you can do is you can lay out all the details uh and then basically plug it in and then just check in with people to make sure that everything is going okay. And, and, and from what I hear um, from the first term, the students are actually really digging it. Like they really like musicians kind of like the sort of self-study thing. And then they get together once a week and sort of show what they're doing. Uh, the, the, the one thing that's missing, but I think it'll, it'll come back when we all get to get back together is that whole group dynamic yeah. like being, but you know what? I think by the time we're back together, we'll be so hungry for it and we'll have worked on our stuff that it'll be awesome. It'll be like, can you imagine like being in a room with more than six people? I mean, I don't know in the United States, maybe it's different, but here it's like we can't be really together yet. I've only been in a room with more than one other person. I don't even know when. It's me and yeah. my roommate. I don't ever see anybody else really. <laughs> Yeah, especially yeah, indoors. So, I mean, I this summer I got together with some friends and played outside six feet, you know, two other friends. But Yeah, so when that comes back, I mean, I think now is the time to be sort of formulating. And I'm, you know, more than, more than interested to, you know, talk to you guys about these kind of ideas because – I think that I think that to make this kind of thing feasible, you, you almost have to do that now. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like there's another thing that, that I don't know if you guys um, do. You know, uh, Rafael Piccolotto, mm -mm. he's mm -hmm. a, he's in the Forho thing, but he's a, he's actually an orchestral conductor, and he's a young guy. He's from Campinas, and he's really multi-talented, and he's really good with video like he you know he's one of these sort of geniuses at everything he does and he shows up as kind of like like with this sort of bag of tricks like he he gives dance lessons uh because he can dance for her too and then he he we put a band together for him and he can do workshops at the university and it's like you have this sort of whole package. Mm -hmm. He has—he actually has like a big band. It's well, it's not really even a big band. It's like four, five strings, four horns, percussion, drums, bass, and accordion. You know, because it's faha and it's gorgeous stuff. Yeah, it's nice to and have I, somebody who's kind of can do more than one. Well, that's the thing. I thing. think like that—that's kind of the idea uh, is to sort of get either one or a couple guys or something that have a sort of 
palette, a diverse palette that can where you can bring bring them up and they can do a bunch of stuff and they can make some money, right? Like everybody wants to make some money, so they they can make some money. Uh, it's harder if you like I've seen, you know, they I think somebody brought up like a tambourine guy from Mangueta or something. And I mean that's harder, you know. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a lot harder. And even if you're a fantastic player, it's harder to make money. Yeah. For a guy that specializes in that. Well, so. like Diana can talk to this. She brings up uh, Pitoku Jiara, and he can teach all the instruments as far as Marika too. And, and yeah, so it's, it's, he's kind man. of a jack of all trades. And we have Dudu Fuentes, who we bring him up sometimes, and he he can teach everything. And it's it's kind of like Gabrielle in, in that he has his own bloco, so you know has a bunch of arrangements awesome. arrangements he's come up with and. Which I think Gabrielle would be good for that because he's got, I don't know how he is on the melodic side, but he's, you know, can arrange it. He's got awesome arrangements. So yeah, for sure. A good, like all in one person. Well, and then the, and then the deal is too, he's, here we are like making plans. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then the deal is, is to get a contingent to go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, he, he's, he's on the pulse of that thing. Like he's our, I, I, I can, uh, I can almost hear his ideas, right. Because, you know, he's going to be able to have, and, and, and this is a logical conclusion. I mean, it's like, you know, you're talking about West Africa to Bahia to Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. to the rest of Brazil, to the rest of the world. And then everybody kind of makes a pilgrimage, you know, mm-hmm. But but under the you know the, a pilgrimage in a way that's twenty first century, yeah. And that I and that I think you know get Marcia involved, you know you definitely need people that can take care of the details. That and I and I think if, if you know you're talking way back when you were talking about you know sort of tips, I think that's one of the other things that I learned is I always had at least one person working with me doing the booking or you know i have a friend who's involved in the tour stage a brazilian woman and she was awesome with just like knowing that whole scene knowing how to you know reserve buses or getting the best you mean in brazil well she lived in toronto she actually lives in montreal now did she organize for you when you had your groups in brazil is that what you're saying or what or yeah when i took groups down there and and i think and i think even up here it's it's the sooner that you can get somebody involved uh in the administration mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. the better and because it, it just wearing so many hats is really tricky yeah. i mean you guys both know that mm-hmm. i don't even have to say that yeah that's the that's the battle right is to get somebody who's like likes to do that kind of stuff and you can find them uh, it's just it's just part of the 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 skill set I think is knowing how to find those people and get them interested and because some people actually really like to help mm-hmm. and and they might not even be the greatest players but they they just they like to be part the whole social element is really big that's what I found too I mean well yeah the, that's that's what I think the social 
community aspect is why most people are involved in, in these groups, of course, because they're not getting paid and spending time on their own practicing. And, you know, but I'm saying like some of the people that are involved as students, like try to give them little jobs mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and sometimes that's tricky because, you know, you're not sure whether you, whether people are interested in doing it or sometimes you're a little embarrassed to ask for favors or, mm. you know, but I think, getting over that hurdle a little bit is mm-hmm. pays off in the long. Yeah. I think once you have that community established, then people are really want to go all in and help and do what they yeah. can to, to make your group yeah. better. Yeah. So that's, you guys kind of know that already. So it sounds like you're on the right track. Sometimes it's just luck too, right? Yeah. So you've also, I want to touch just for a minute um, we're getting close to time here, but just for a minute on, you've done some gamelan projects and some other, um, your band Tassa has got some tabla Indian influence, um, in it. Can you talk for a minute about how you got involved in that, in that music? Yeah, sure. Well, the band Tassa was actually a project by Ravi Nampali and, uh, we're not actually playing together anymore, but we I, we recorded I think four or five records, and uh, I think I mean and the Gamelon stuff was with the Evergreen Gamelon, and and a lot of that my involvement in world music you know whatever that means you know because all music that we know is from the planet Earth so, um, <clears throat> but I guess part of me coming to Toronto was to sort of follow that idea vis-a-vis the nexus guys and um john wire who was one of the major uh one of my major influences here he wasn't a formal teacher but he definitely was a guru of mine he played in 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 nexus he actually got me involved in music from different cultures and he hired me actually to do a couple of projects called world drums and this was back when there was like a decent amounts of money to, for performances, <laughs> a lot of live performances. And it was a group actually of 144 different, 144 drummers from all over the world. And we played in about four or five different places, mostly for expos, um, like world expositions. And as part of it, he would take the Evergreen Club, Club Gamelon sometimes, and he wrote a piece for them and maracas. And strangely enough, I studied when I played in that uh, Chilean band that played Afro-Peruvian music. <laughs> I also studied a little bit of Venezuelan maracas. And hmm. he wrote a piece, and that piece that you probably heard was that recording with the Gamelon. I did play with them a little bit as a Gamelon member, but not as much as I used to play as a soloist with Maracas. Um, I, I can't remember the pieces. From from me flows what they call time or something like that. But John was a really big influence on me in, in and him and Russell and also a lot of the guys that I studied with like Tata in Brazil and Filó in terms of getting a good sound out of an instrument. <clears throat> uh, and then I, I think I, I feel like for the rest of my life, I will be always studying 
these instruments and I kind of go around in circles. Um, and I'm lucky because percussion has a lot of different instruments, but I always feel like if you can, if you can, if you can get a good sound out of an instrument, you get your, you get your way into a different ensemble and you can play with people. Cause one thing that I think one of my teachers, I think it was John used to say that most of the time we don't play with other drummers. We play with other musicians mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. so they want they want you to be able to play quietly you know they want you to have a difference a good sound out of your instrument i mean you'll notice you know we've been talking a lot about gabriel policarpo he can really play quietly he has a very classical touch to his instrument and that is because uh he has played with musicians from those genres like you know he has that Hepimba piece, which is, uh, which is uh, Repiniki with uh, the marimba, with marimba mm -hmm. right? And I know I, you know, I've chatted with them a few times too about, you know, you basically learn it by, you know, people telling you to shut up and play quietly, you know, because <laughs> he comes from a he comes from a whole different kind of aesthetic, right? Which is like basically play as loud as you can, and then you have to learn how to play as quietly as you can, and so. These groups like the Gamelon and in Tassa, when I played in Tassa, we, you know, Ravi brought in a lot of uh, his classical Indian um, ideas into, in, into a group where none of us had that experience. But I have to say, like, the, some of the concepts, you know, like playing with a tabla player, uh, have influenced the way that I play a lot of the stuff now. Like, you know, play his, his um, expertise is tabla, but he also did some other, played some other instruments, but often, you know, playing in different meters. I think one of, one of the, one of my sort of pet things to do is to play bateria. And I'd love to do another record with this in odd meters because as far as I know, very few people have done it. And when I do it in Brazil, most of the professional guys freak out. You know, they love it because they, because they, you know, most musicians are wanting to do something a little bit different. You know, playing grooves in weird meters, like in eleven or seven or five or something like that.
Yeah, you had that that one on the Chocolate CD, Fantastica Batteria, where it was in 11.8. Is that what it was? Yeah, there are a couple of them that are in different meters. There's one that that I did. Uh, one of the guys in one of the in in one of the formations of that group, he he played the Dole, which is a, mm -hmm. a the Indian an Eastern. Yeah, and he was into some of these things and. There's one of the tunes is called Dole Drums, which is in it's in a bunch of different meters. Yeah, it just flips around. idea i kind of like uh and you know it's it's also i think from just trying to do something a little bit different you know trying to mm -hmm. do something that's a little bit a little bit more i don't know from where my background is but i i find like a, a lot of those influences have really helped me come along and what i see is now everybody's like interested and in it's in doing new things you know it used to be when i first started doing this stuff 
uh, and maybe it was also the musicians that I was around, but a, a lot of them, and also maybe because of the technical restrictions that I had at the time, they wanted to teach me, especially in Brazil, they wanted to teach me a very specific way. And now what I find is, you know, with, I think, globalization and stuff, and also the more accomplished the musician is, the more they're interested in doing, you know, new and different things. One day it'll happen in the Sapukai. I remember in 97 when that, it was Viradoro too. It, they had that funk group for like two or three bars. You'll and have to Google that. Yeah, you, it's it's that tune. Vocaína gandaya, leva minha bateria. Para na mulata, explosão de alegria. Vocaína dan. But it was in 4-4. Yeah, but it was scandalous. It was unbelievable. I mean, I remember hearing it and kind of going, oh, cool, that's a cool little thing, right? And then it was like, this is not some. It was like two oh, things. Two, that was. There were these. Yes, that was. Jonas uh, or, Mestri Jonas, yeah, right. Um, he did that. And they told him yeah, not was, to. There's a whole story behind that. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's huge, right? And, and and But it was really interesting because it's that. It's that. It's that musical thing, you know, like the musician is, I think, the higher up you go. It's like what Picasso used to say. You'd say, you know, music critics, or sorry, art critics talk about art, and artists talk about where you can get the best turpentine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, so the, so the guys who are really into it, they want to, you know, they're into sort of sculpting sculpturing something a little bit new or different or how do you get this happening and i remember when that came out and listening to it and thinking wow what a cool little idea and but i didn't really realize it until later until people started talking about it and then it was like on the newspaper and you know people were saying you know they can't do it in the avenida and then of course they did and it was you know and then the next year all the samba's yeah everybody does It's so cool that stuff, but I mean, that's, I guess that's sort of what happens in any kind of development of anything. I think and that, that's we're part right of in the lore of Mestri Jonas too, right? I mean, he. It is. I think he was he was saying at the Diana. Do you remember the story? Which one? He had so many <laughs> about. Or I'm sorry, not Jonas. Georgiou. Um He, <laughs> the the. The president of the school or you know, some of the higher ups at the school were telling him not to do it. And he hit the quote in the paper was, was, I guess, got the devil inside of me and I called the break and we did it on the Avenida. Right. We should ask Bruno Marais about this. Mm-hmm. He'll know. It's, yeah, it's interesting. It's really, I mean, but I think it's natural. It's sort of human nature. Human nature is, you know, this battle between the true essence of your being and the battle with the ego, right? And the ego is always there to kind of yell and scream and I don't know. And then, and then, but the essence of our being is always creative and always, you know, joining each other together and especially through music. Right. Mm-hmm. And so and, and those and, and that kind of stuff clashes, I think, 
always. I think it's part of development. It's kind of like what the COVID thing is happening right now, right? It's like a big metaphor for, you know, just this big shakeup that we need. You know, we've created so many crazy things on the planet Earth. And now we need to sort of break up all those crazy things that we've created, mostly through the ego. And now we're we're kind of starting again. We're going to start again in some way, shape, or form. And I, and and that's why I say I I I really strongly feel that we're going to be a part of this new age of linking these cultures together in a way that's never happened before, and it's really exciting and. You know, I, I, I feel like even just these courses that that are happening now, you, you see it happening already, right? Because it's international and people having access and, you know, people speak so many more different languages now. People are interested. And it's not just like everybody has to learn how to speak English. It's like, no, let's learn how to speak whatever language it is that we're studying because you can... And now you can it's study like, it online if you want to. And now you can study it online. It's so awesome. I remember when I was know? learning Spanish, I'd have to go to at college. I'd have to go to the listening lab, and I would have to go to this yeah. lab and put headphones on and listen to these people speak. And now I can just listen to podcasts in Portuguese in my headphones when I go for a walk every day. You know what I'm saying? Like it's yeah. it's so much easier to have access to if you want it, if you want to learn and with the music as well, and like it's there, it's there for you if you want it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. A, it's, it's nice. It's a, and hopefully this springboards us into the future of more connection and mm-hmm. more good. Music. I think it is. I think it's doing it already. Yeah. I think we're already, we're already, you know, in midair, mm-hmm. you know, I think it started as soon as the, the pandemic sort of, I mean, I, I feel that personally, like right away, I felt like, you know, I felt like I had kind of a responsibility to the students that were basically getting the mm-hmm. the end of their their year just cut off. Right. So I thought, and that basically too, at, at, the, at the university, they said, just give everybody an A, you know? And I thought, well, you know, it's not just about that. Let's, let's, let's try and see what else we can do. So I, I did kind of the same thing that's been going on now, which is like, everybody gets to play from home and we put it all together in one package and and then stick it on youtube or whatever but the process of doing that it it gives us a sense of you get a sense of who you are as an individual and and how we can um glue together ourselves in the virtual way but it's i think it's a metaphor for what's going to happen when we're out of this Mm. and i think guys like you guys too have you've got a taste of the non-virtual way and and there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to be dying for human contact. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. And I think everything from live performances of professional musicians to this kind of thing that you guys are involved in, in terms of community groups, and I swear it's going to, like, once it's safe, like, and it might take a while where people feel 100% safe, might be two years from now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I, but I think when it is, I tell you, I, I think it's so natural for human beings to want that, yeah. and they're gonna, they're gonna be starved for it. Yeah. I mean, how starving are we already? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we appreciate your time, Alan. We appreciate your thoughts on this. Um, 
thank you so much for yes, coming thanks. on and sharing your story with us. It's always fun chatting well, with thanks you. For your, and good, thanks for the invitation. It was a real pleasure. And good luck with everything going on. Same with you guys. And for sure, let's keep in touch and vis a vis the world drum situation. you guys enjoyed that interview if you would like to learn more about alan and what he's up to and see his links and find links to his musical work you can find them at thebrazilianbeat.com so uh yeah go check it out we'll have all his links there wanted to give a shout out to melanie k who emailed us the other day about um groups around the world she i believe she went to china and when she went there, she was looking for a group, found out there was, I think, only two groups. Is that what she said? Yeah. Not in the cities where she lived. Right. So she was asking us for information. So we've been talking about uh, putting together a list to have in our resources of groups outside Brazil. So uh, if you're listening to this <laughs> and you want to send us your contact for your group, um, with your director and who to reach or an email or Facebook group, that would be great. And we'll add you to our list. Yeah. And Melanie's not just a listener. She's she's a fan. She won a trivia competition <laughs> at Brazil camp and won a t-shirt. So. Yes. So she's so, one yeah. of the, one she's of those awesome. people. Yeah. One of those people wearing one of our t-shirts around this world. Yeah. And you can buy those on the gosamba.net website. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Melanie. Thanks for emailing, Melanie. Oh, if you guys are looking for lessons, now is the time because everyone is available online. Gabriel Policarpo is opening up his uh, Hipiki class, which starts uh, in March, the first week of March. Yeah, so go check that out on his website. I think it's gabriellepolicarpo.com slash br dot com dot br. So you can find him. He's all over social media, but um, his class was great. So... So definitely sign up for that one. It seems like a lot of people asked you about that um, after that uh, that video was posted, right, Courtney? Yeah, he put together at the end of the last series. He does them in in like a series of like four months. So at the end of the series, he had us all play this composition that he wrote, and then had it professionally um, put together by you know professional videographers, which was cool. So um, yeah, a lot of people had asked me, "Oh, how do I get involved?" and I do that. So the class is open now. So check it out. All right. So say hi to us on social media and uh, hope you guys are doing well. Stay safe. And yeah, talk to you soon. Take care. Ciao.